Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Inside Business uh, Podcast. I'm Tom Lyon, Senior Business Correspondent with the Irish Times, and coming up we'll be discussing the giant that is glass and tin manufacturer Arda, the battle for control of troubled building group Sayak, and we'll be taking a closer look at Google's $3.2 billion acquisition of Nest. Uh, we'll also be looking at the cost of Irish water with Colm Keena and chatting later on with Brett Myers, the chief executive of Hot Irish Startup Currency Fair. In studio at the moment, we have John McManus, business editor of the Irish Times, and my colleagues Barry O'Halloran and Kira O'Brien. Uh, I'll start with you, John. Um, Luxembourg-based financier Paul Coulson's Arda. It's been trying for some time to complete a major acquisition in America, but yet it seems to be running into some sort of difficulties. Can you tell us what's going on there? Well, the 13th of uh, January was the deadline for the completion of of the acquisition, which was announced almost a a year ago to date, and it's been held up because the Federal Trade Commission in the U.S. is very worried about um, the dominance that Ardar will have of the U.S. um, uh, market for packaging, which is glass bottles and tin cans, basically. And they've been trying to to reach an agreement with... um, with the Federal Trade Commission, which would involve divesting of um, some of their plants, six plants in total. And they seem to be on the cusp of an agreement there just before Christmas, but the deadline uh, of the 13th passed and uh, they didn't complete the deal. And as a result, two things happened, really. The first thing is it triggered the uh, uh, clause in their financing. They'd raised $1.5 billion in debt, and that all has to be returned to the uh, the, the, the lenders, the bondholders, uh, because it wasn't used, but also the deal could have fallen through, but they've managed to get a uh, extension of the um, of the uh, uh, of of about a month or so with from the Sankaban, the seller, to try and reach a deal with the FTC. So it's uh, it's all very uh, high stakes at the moment. Yeah, there's a lot of money at stake. Uh, would you be concerned at all that the that the deal could be slipping away from Arda? I mean, bondholders and banks don't like these long extensions, and they don't like these continuing talks uh, with the Federal Trade Commission. There's um, there, there's there's sort of several there's sort of several factors at play. Some positive for Arda and some negative. One, I suppose, is that they are would appear to be close to a deal. So if they can strike a deal, then that's the execution risk greatly minimised. So the uh, they can probably raise uh, additional finance to uh, to do it. 
but the, the all that in itself raises various other questions. Like, will they be able to finance at the same uh, at the same rates, same favourable rates? You know, things have changed within uh, both good and bad for the last year. Um, U.S. economy is going strongly. Gas prices, which are big uh, energy input into glass into packaging, are coming down. But their uh, European business is struggling, and uh, that's uh, had a big effect on cash flow and has seen them downgraded by Moody's. So yeah, they, they, it's, a, it's a sort of a clean sheet really as far as the, the bondholders are concerned. And then the other thing you have to remember is that uh, presumably Sanger Bank can walk away from this deal now because the uh, deadline has passed and hasn't been completed and maybe they think they can get a, uh, a better price. So um, it, it's, it's far from, uh, it, it's very uncertain really the outlook. And what do you think, Barry? I mean, Paul Coulson is often described as one of Ireland's richest men. Uh, do you think that that's because people aren't taking into account just how much he's also borrowed? Yeah, I, I think that is a fact. But one of the things that strikes me about this deal is that they are enormously keen to pull it off because the, the business that they are effectively offering to divest uh, to the FTC is Anchor Glass, on which they spent over $700 million uh, less than two years ago. And this was their, this, this was, a, when they did that deal, this was essentially them putting down a marker saying, we're here, we're in the US, and we want to take on this market. And now they, they're willing to get rid of it in order to take over Viralia. And the, uh, the other big story, I suppose, this week that you've been covering very closely, Barry, is the battle for Syek, you know, the 100-year-old builder. Uh, you, you know, at, at first, we, it seemed to be the case that, you know, former site serve uh, boss Brian Harvey was going to be the one who was going to come out as the new owner of this business but uh, now that seems to be changing Yeah that, that, that's, that's changed very rapidly. Essentially there were, there were six bidders initially or six serious bidders in the mix that boiled down to uh, Harvey on the one hand and uh, a group including the Ferry family who are the existing shareholders uh, a large French player called Colas who has a um, who has a subsidiary a bitumen supplying subsidiary here and the Jennings brothers from the north who are operating through uh, a, an investment fund. The fairies and their allies have effectively won the day. I understand that the investment is in the... They haven't confirmed this, but my understanding is that the investment is somewhere in the region of 12 to 13 million. And I also understand that Harvey may have made a second bid even after he was named, uh, even after he sort of emerged as the front runner towards the end of December last. But in any case, uh, Ferries and the French have have won out. Um, But, you know, the the game isn't up yet because essentially both the creditors and the High Court now have to approve this deal. And the deal involves effectively splitting the property companies, where the where which are effectively responsible for a forty-two million in secured debt to three banks, and the operating business, ensuring that the operating business, a contracting business, has a clean has a clean balance sheet, which is going to be very important for it because um, all contracting businesses have to be able to raise money to provide bonds for the work that they do. So, if they can get that through the High Court, which I think is due before the end of the month. Um, we'll then actually see what 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 shape, what shape the new business will take. But uh, like I say, that it's not it's not quite across the finish line yet. And what do you, what's your sense, Barry, for the employees? You know, the several hundred staff. You know, is it the, the existing owners coming out as winners? Is that the best solution for the company, or you know, or, or is it right that the guys who got the, the business into trouble, 
you know, end up back with it? Look, it, it's arguable. I mean, that's certainly a question that should be posed. On the one hand, you could say, look, the, the people who've run it uh, apparently haven't had a very good record in the last two or three years, but they'd say that, 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 that the problems that beset the group were the, the issues in Poland and they were outside their control. On the other hand, you could also argue that the Ferry family has had control of the business for 100 years. For her 97 or 98 of those years, it was quite successful and it actually looked to be... Um, um, getting through the recession or the initial years of the, the recession quite well despite what was happening to many of its rivals so they obviously know the business so there are the, the, there's, there's, there's a plus to, to the fact that they're coming in there is also new equity coming into the business in, in the form of uh, Colas which is whose majority shareholder is, is uh, another very large French player called Bouygues uh, now both those companies between them um, they each have uh, turnovers in the region of 10 billion and assets that are measured in the sort of the three or the four billions. So these are people with quite deep pockets. And it does look to me that they are quite keen to get a foothold now in the actual uh, construction industry because they, they're getting a sense that there is a turnaround. And uh, what's your take on this, John? You know, here we see, we, we see uh, you know, the existing people who got the company into trouble teaming up with a new party and taking back the business uh, and various people losing money. I mean, why do you think that this sort of thing couldn't happen in, say, Nama, for example? Well, I, th- I suppose the first point to make is examinerships are meant to say viable companies. So there probably is a, a, a pre sort of a predisposition towards the existing management because the assumption is some exceptional thing has has has, uh, has put the company off track, and and with um, SAC, I think you, you you could say the Polish debacle was uh, exceptional, and they're not alone. I mean, there, there's the there's European construction companies queuing up to sue the Polish government over the way uh, uh, they were treated in road contracts, uh, and I think one of the, the but the people who haven't really been mentioned in this, of course, are the unsecured creditors, the small creditors, and uh, from from reading Barry's piece this morning. Uh, uh, it seems as though their best hope is that this litigation in uh, against the Polish government is successful, um, which uh, is probably there's probably a fifty fifty chance of that. Kira O'Brien, one of the the big international technology stories of of the week was Google acquiring Nest for three point two billion dollars. Uh, this is a company which was only founded in two thousand and ten. Uh, how does a company become so valuable so quickly? Well, I think you have to look at two things. First of all, who's behind it? And second of all, what they actually do. Um, The main person behind Nest is Tony Fidel, who is ex-Apple, was heavily involved in the the design and the the production of the iPod. So somebody who already has a proven track record in producing products that people want. What Nest actually do is they take, say, your everyday average products. They only have two at the moment, but they take your average everyday products and they make it more useful. So in this case, they've taken uh, thermostats and smoke alarms. And anybody who has a smoke alarm in particular knows it's a, a kind of a work of the devil at times where you three o'clock in the morning you wake up and your smoke alarm is chirping with because there's a low battery and then you have to try and get it off the ceiling. Um, or it will go off for absolutely no reason. What the Nest... Protect does, which is the smoke alarm, is it actually uh, will let you know before the alarm starts sounding what's actually wrong. So it will tell you there's smoke in the bedroom or it will tell you there's a low battery. So it's a bit more human. It puts a human element to it. And the thermostat learns from your behaviour. So it will learn your patterns when you're home and it will help you adjust the temperature in your house accordingly. So it's machine-based learning. And, and why do you think Google wants this company so much? You know, a company which, which still only has two products. Well, I suppose if you're to look at what what Google do, I mean, obviously data is a big thing about about this deal. Um, 
this opens up a whole new world of, of data for Google to get access to. They'll now know what's going on inside your home. Now, obviously, that brings its own challenges with it. But Google has also been branching out into the kind of robotics arm of things quite quietly. And that's where Nest, I suppose, comes into it that bit more. And we know that uh, Tony Fidel, uh, the, the founder of Nest, that he was looking at Dublin uh, last year when he was over here for the for the Dublin Web Summit um, about setting up an operation here. Do you think that, that that plan is now dead or do you think that it come back in some shape or form? I don't think it's dead. Um, the reports that we've seen are that, that it, it may still go ahead. Um, obviously, we won't know until... Google makes a, a final decision because obviously they have a fairly sizable presence here. It would make sense maybe for them to to bring Nest over. Um, but I suppose it depends on whether or not Nest will continue operating as a separate entity from Google, whether or not it will be subsumed into the, the, the entire Google universe. Uh, so it's just a wait and see. And just finally, Kira, there's there's a, another story which which seems to be coming out quite quickly involving an Irish company called Stripe and Twitter. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening there? Well, Stripe is actually San Francisco-based, but it was set up by two brothers from Limerick, uh, Patrick and John Collison. Uh, they've been in the, the news quite a bit recently because Stripe has expanded outside of the US, launched in Ireland and opened an office in London. What Stripe does is it allows, uh, made it that bit easier for developers to actually take payments. And uh, Where Twitter comes into it is there's a possibility that you'll be able to pay for goods and services through Twitter. Um, it's kind of a new area almost for Twitter. They've kind of dabbled in e-commerce before, but nothing to this extent, I think. Now, obviously, it's all still rumour. Neither party are actually confirming whether or not this is going ahead. But if it does, it'd be, it'd be an interesting step, I think, for both companies. Well, uh, Barry O'Halloran, Kira O'Brien and John McManus, uh, thanks for coming on the this week's Inside Irish Business podcast. And next, we're going to be looking at Fishing for Business, the Irish Water story. Irish Water has been a huge story in the last fortnight. We've had 50 million euros spent on consultants so far, 86 million euros due to be spent. We're hearing IBM is getting 45 million euros, Accenture is getting 17 million euros, EY, the former auditor of Anglo-Irish Bank, is getting another 4 or 5 million euros. Uh, Colm Keena, you've been looking very closely at, at, at this story. Uh, what's your take on the whole thing so far? Well, I think um, people got very uh, excited and um, uh, stunned that such large amounts of money were being paid out by this uh, new project that's designed to help us uh, uh, pay for our water systems. And um, However, uh, when you s- talk to people in the sector, this, uh, these sort of utility companies are being established ar- around the globe and s- in particular all over Britain. So and the... Um, this is exactly what happens when you when you try to set up these uh, operations. Um, there's a huge lo- logistical uh, task involved. There's enormous uh, amounts of dispersed assets. There probably are uh, a lot of um, stuff under the ground, the state of which or even the location of which is not entirely clear. It all has to be digitalized. Um, you have to set up a billing system. You have to... Um, have some way of uh, managing uh, staff that used to belong to a lot of local authorities and now is going to belong or be be under the command of one uh, organisation. So it's it's just a huge operation. Um, and uh, the, the idea or the query we had in our mind was, how do you price these consultancy contracts then? You know, I mean, there's some consultancy comes, comes along and it gets fat fees from a soft target. However, the people I spoke to during the week 
we're of the view that the pricing is quite competitive. So you think it's it's a sort of a it's a storm in a teacup or a fuss over nothing or how do you see it, Colm? Well, I see it as a, a certainly very badly handled from a PR communications uh, point of view and very badly handled uh, politically or strangely handle, handled politically in that. So when you knew you were setting up the Irish Water, you know if you'd done any. Uh, had a conversation with the people who were going to be in charge of it, you would have known that this sort of uh, work had to be done. Um, so why it should come su- to surprise the, the Minister for Environment, Phil Hogan, is you know shocking and extraordinary. I spoke to a former chief executive of the uh, Northern Iron Water, and he, you know, every consultancy contract he had to sign off it, he had to discuss with his line minister. You know, um, the other thing about it that strikes me. Uh, um, having spoken to some people involved, is that the experience has been that it's a really, really difficult thing to do. Uh, It's politically very sensitive and it's very difficult to merge the operations of municipal authorities and local authorities. Uh, That's been the experience elsewhere around Europe. And um, what Ireland is trying to do is uh, to do it very, very quickly. Um, And so whether, you know, it'll work according to plan, I think you'd have to... um, worry about that. We're trying to set up maybe one of the biggest operations that have been set up since the foundation of the state. This is bigger than the ESB. It's it's just a huge historical event, which is not a a puzzler really, because you would have thought that Phil Hogan would be getting up every morning, excited about his involvement in such an historical uh, development and and know what was going on. But he seems to not have had a clue as to what was going on. Meanwhile, these men were running the show and and commissioning these contractors and discussing what was happening with the Troika. And why do you think, Colm, I mean, Big Phil, uh, Minister Phil Hogan, he's a very experienced politician, uh, you, you know, how has he, 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 has he made such a, a disaster of this whole thing that it's been, you know, an, a, a running sore and a pure disaster for, you know, going on two weeks now? Well, it, seem, it seems it's, it's obvious now that the company, Irish Water, were briefing the department and somehow he wasn't um, getting the, the information, it wasn't floating up to him. Um, also, I mean, the budget was assigned to Irish Water and everybody knew what they needed to do. These things were all signed off. And so how he couldn't know is extraordinary. Um, there's some suggestions he was trying, you know, he might be speak no evil, hear no evil, see no evil, evil until the local elections are, are, have passed us by. I don't know, but it is an extraordinary fact. Um, the um, It was interesting. I spoke to a former chief executive of, of Northern Ireland Water, which was set up, I think, in 2007. Preparatory work was going on since the middle 1990s and involved a lot fewer local authorities than are the uh, case in Ireland, in the Republic. And, uh, you know, that's just been plagued by difficulties. All the, all the uh, political parties have given commitments. They won't introduce domestic water charges. And uh, your chief executives have been coming and going every time there's a scandal. The chief executive seems to get turfed out and... Um, um, he, he was of the view that the uh, chief executive of Irish Water would be gone by now if this, had happened, if this had happened north of the border, even though you could argue it's not really his fault. And when you see, Colm, you know, we're hearing about that, you know, that people working for Irish Water, that they're going to be due bonuses, that they're going to have a gym in the basement, and they've got all of these perks. Uh, do you think that that's also an issue for Irish Water, that, you know, that there are people who are going to be charging very highly you know, people who are under pressure to, to, to pay the bills, and yet they seem to have quite a, a comfortable life. 
Yes. Well, you have to worry about the uh, the ethos that takes hold in a company. I think that the commercial semi-states in Ireland, a lot of them have been very um, profitable and have tended to look after their staff very well. And this might turn out to be the case with, with Irish water. However, a lot of people suspect that down the line will be privatised and you might have that sort of attitude of top management uh, take hold in the company. I don't know if that's the case. But I was very interested that the, the former chief executive of Northern Ireland Water, um, uh, Trevor Hazard, uh, referred to the Welsh model, which is um, seems, according to him, is the most popular one, where you have a not-for-profit not organisation or a mutual um, running the water service and a committee that keeps an eye on what it's what it's up to, and so the domestic charges and the have to pay for the service, but the the people who are in charge of it are, have a uh, a mandate to ensure that the the pricing isn't used uh, to create profits for some third parties. Well, I think that if there's one thing that's coming out of the story column, it's that um, you know the first fifty million euros, uh, Minister Phil Hogan mightn't have much of, a, of an idea about how it was spent, but the next thirty-six, I think he's going to be keeping a, a much closer eye on. Uh, thanks for coming. If he's on. still around, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for coming on uh, the, the the podcast column. We're joined now by Brett Myers, uh, Chief Executive of Currency Fair, a peer-to-peer currency exchange. It's one of the Ireland's hottest startups, and his company has recently launched a new TV and online campaign featuring one Sebastian Chabal, uh, the fearsome French rugby player. Uh, Brett, you, you know, you don't look so fearsome yourself, uh, but how did you convince Chabal to dress up like a fairy and go around promoting your business? Well, it's an interesting one. I think we, uh, once we decided we were going to do some TV, we approached a number of agencies in the UK. We actually had a very good guy working for us by the name of Adam Davidson, who's still with us, in fact, uh, who did a lot of the TV advertising for Money Supermarket a number of years ago. Uh, So one of the agencies, I mean, the agencies all put on good presentations, but one of them in particular wowed us with this concept of the currency fairy. And actually, they used Shabal as their example, but with the explanation that you won't get Shabal, but this is what we're trying to accomplish here. Uh, And we decided that was the winning concept. Um, And then as we were uh, moving things along, they said, actually, Shabal has said he's available. Um, So we we leapt at that chance. And what's the reaction been like so far, particularly in places like France? Yeah, it's getting getting talked about a lot, um, particularly on on Twitter and online. Um, And it really polarizes people. Some people love it. Some people say... You know, comments like, how much did you have to pay Shabal to, to do this? You know, so it's really, but I guess Twitter does tend to polarise people in some way. So it's a, both a mix, but either way, it's it's interest anyway. People are very interested in the ad. And uh, I heard that as many as 40,000 people have watched it on YouTube. Is that about right? Or It's a bit more now, 57 when I left the office, I think 57,000. And has this converted into business for currency fare? You know, it's not, you know, it's great everyone's talking about it, but are people actually using currency fare more? Well, it's only uh, it's only a week, um, and we've definitely seen an uptick in traffic to the website and increased registrations, which is part of the uh, you know part of the idea of doing the TV. Now, the TV itself has only been live in the UK since uh, Monday, but it, it bleeds through on some of the Irish uh, TV as well, and uh, so yeah, increased registrations. But really, part of the part of the reason for TV is is just general awareness and branding, and so we think we're definitely far more people know about us than, than did this time a week ago, that's for sure. 
And can you tell us a little bit about Brett? You know, like how does currency fair work exactly? You know, in simple terms. Yeah. So. If you have a need to send money internationally, which a lot of expats do, businesses paying invoices and so on, uh, the traditional method is to go to your bank and they effectively take care of it for you, charge you an exchange rate, which tends to have a big margin built in, can be 3 5% or more. It's a slow process. People talk about money taking a week to arrive through what's known as an international SWIFT transfer, somewhat ironically perhaps. But uh, <laughs> what we do is we... Uh, we try and use the domestic payment systems. So there's two things we do, really. Rather than transferring money internationally, uh, our customers send money to us locally using the domestic payment systems. And generally, in most countries, they're very fast and, and generally free. Uh, and we then link uh, customers in other jurisdictions through our marketplace. So effectively, let's say a company here is paying a, an invoice in sterling. There is uh, plenty of sterling companies paying euro invoices for example, or it could be individuals transferring money. We link these parties together via our marketplace, meaning that when they match off, the money is already in the domestic, uh, sorry, the destination country, uh, country. So we can use the domestic payment system at each end to link people through this marketplace and effectively it results in a, a product which is 90% cheaper and a lot quicker. And Brett, you're an Australian, you know, living in Dublin. Did the idea for the company come from your own experience, from see, or from seeing what your friends needed when they were living when you when you first came to the UK slash Ireland? It did actually. It, uh, I used to send money home, um, you know, from time to time, and still do if I'm going back for Christmas or or, or on a trip. And uh, I got stung a number of times. I mean, gee, back. 15 years ago, I remember queuing up at branches and filling in forms. Uh, and actually, what we used to do is buy a bank draft, and I used to post it back to my mum in Australian dollars, and she'd then take it down to the bank and deposit it. Um, and I, I, I shudder to think how much I was losing in fees. And there was one particular transfer uh, that my mum made over to me uh, as a deposit on a house that I bought a few years ago, unfortunately. And uh, <laughs> the amount that I lost in that, it was hundreds, you know, it was just for a deposit, but it was hundreds lost. So at that point, I decided not to use that system anymore. So if I wanted to buy Australian dollars, I'd look up uh, friends of mine that were from Australia, might be out this way and say, look, I need some Australian dollars. Do you want some euros? Uh, and if we, if we, uh, if we agreed, uh, we'd just use the, the day's interbank rate, which is like the wholesale rate, uh, and just transfer money between our bank accounts. So my friend had transfer me some Australian dollars down in Australia and I'd transfer them some euros over here. And essentially that's what Currency Fair does. It's just, it sort of abstracts it a bit and, and makes it an online marketplace. We sit in the middle providing the trust uh, and the security and making sure the payments go where they need to go. But that's what we're doing really, linking different parties together. And Brett, you took in about two and a half million dollars in funding from uh, Frontline Ventures, which is backed by Declan Ryan, uh, among others, uh, he's the he'd be well known to people for being the son of Tony Ryan, the founder of Ryanair. Uh, what is it do you think that they like about your company? You know, like why do you think the Frontline decided to to invest in Currency Fair rather than than any of the many other companies who pitched to them? Sure. Well, I think there's uh, the, the the concept of Currency Fair itself is inherently very simple, so um, people get it straight away, and it has that feeling that actually this could be the next big thing in a lot of ways, you know, and we certainly see it that way that in in a few years' time, this is a viable replacement for using SWIFT to transfer money internationally. Um, so I think it was partly the, uh, from Frontline's perspective, 
partly the uh, data we've seen to date, so a great growth rate despite uh, very little marketing spend, um, great retention of our customers. So the uh, the whole economics, unit economics of what we've done so far look very good and our growth rates are great, but also that, uh, I think that potential, you know, that feeling that this really could be a billion euro company or more at some stage, you know, in the next few years. And where are you at the moment, Brett? I mean, like, can you give a, give me a sense, you know, of, of how many people are using your service and what sort of numbers are, go, are running through the books? Yeah, sure. So, um we had over 40 million euros transferred uh, last month in December, despite it being, it actually gets a little bit quieter over the Christmas period. <clears throat> um, so, you know, you're looking at on a, on a typical business day, somewhere around two and a half million euros, uh, you know, the euro equivalent, because obviously we deal in a number of currencies, but around two and a half million euros goes through daily. Um, and that's, um, uh, so there's, there's, you know, several hundred towards a thousand customers a day making a transaction on the site. And you're already talking, Breda, you know, about doing a new fundraising. I mean, how much do you think you, you need to raise and, and what are you going to use that, that money for? Yeah, there's a few different, uh, two main things that, we, that we're looking to raise money for. The first is marketing. So we've got where we are um, uh, without really spending a huge amount on marketing. Obviously, the TV campaign is, is expensive and we're hoping to get some good results from that so that we can expand it. But there's a number of other things that we're looking to do. So really prim- primarily uh, marketing, but also there's other jurisdictions that we want to move into. And so that can take some time and some money to organise you know, the regulatory side of things. Well, Brett Mayer is Chief Executive of Currency Fair. Uh, thanks for coming on uh, today's podcast. And that's it for the Irish Times Inside Business podcast uh, presented by myself, Tom Lyons. Uh, sound was by JJ Vernon and Rob O'Sullivan. And the podcast was produced by Sinead O'Shea. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.